0: Welcome back to Tech on Top. Today we're jumping in with getting started or also refining or just improving your investment journey. And joining me to help break this down is Rao Pal, CEO and founder of Real Vision. Between Raul Pal and Real Vision, they have millions of subscribers and followers who they give financial investing and economic advice to. So we're going to jump straight in with just where to begin. So, Raupal, thank you so much for joining me for this Kickstarter on how to get started with macroeconomic investing. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great, thank you. Can't complain.
0: Excellent. OK, so we're going to jump straight in. So a lot of our viewers have just a lot of intrigue with how the industry is moving and where the things are going forward. One thing that I want to start with is just looking at macroeconomic investing as a whole and where to get started. So I took to Google and I so, <laughs> broke through the three most searched questions when it comes to macroeconomics and how to get started. And I'm going to run through some of them today and we're just going to have a little conversation formulating on that. The first one that came up actually was just how to assess what drives asset prices. And I thought you could help me break that down.
1: Yes. So if you think about it, what is macroeconomic investing? It's using the economy to understand the direction, the future direction of assets. Why does that happen? Well, simply, if the economy is booming, people have more money to spend, and it tends to be positive for assets. And if the economy is slowing down or negative, then you tend to find that asset prices don't do as well. Kind of makes sense. Some assets work the opposite way around generally. So usually when things are slow, bonds do very well, um, but equities do badly, for example. And the easy way to see this, well, it's not so easy because you can't do it without putting it in a spreadsheet. It's actually the year on year rate of change of almost every asset, whether it's copper, oil, the S&P 500. bonds, yields, anything, they're basically related to the, I use the Institute of Supply Managers Survey, the ISM survey, which is a monthly survey that basically tracks GDP, so economic growth. And it shows you that as soon as you make these things year on year, they look identical to the economic cycle. And that's the kind of big unlock is realizing the economic cycle drives all asset prices. If you know where that's going, you can kind of make forecasts about asset prices.
0: And I had a little look into some of your recommendations and do's and don'ts, and you mentioned the ISM and you said this was almost your kind of go-to foolproof. So is that the case that actually, if you are looking to get started in investing, you just have to know the right places to look, ISM being a really good kind of data metric for this. Uh, And once you get that and you nail it down, it's pretty much foolproof.
1: Well, nothing is foolproof in this world, right? All we're trying to do is get probabilities in our favor to try and roughly assess but here's what's simple is if you look at a chart of the ism over the last 50 years it goes up and down in cycles the economic cycle we all hear that term what it means is kind of you know that if it's rolling over it's likely to go all the way to recession it doesn't always happen but your probabilities are high and once you're in recession it tends to start picking up again and that gives you the green light to maybe buy some of these things so in a very simple terms You're looking, the 50 line in the ISM is roughly where it goes to contraction or expansion. If it's coming down and going through 50, you start to worry about recession. So currently, while we're doing this, I think the ISM is somewhere around 52 and on its way down. So we're starting to think, oh, there's probably a recession coming. Um, And when it comes up through 50, you're kind of being given the green light.
0: So you mentioned under 50 that I think you said in a previous podcast 47 was roughly the benchmark is that correct?
1: 47 is the benchmark for a recession. Okay. Um but generally speaking things get a bit wobbly once you get through 50. And 47 so the- is the- it tells you okay the economy is now in recession.
0: So the million dollar question is now, where are we in terms of market cycles? I think a lot of people are kind of watching from the sidelines. If they are looking to invest, they're thinking, is this the right time? You know, people say, how do you survive a recession? Is cash king? So first off, let's start with where we are in the market cycle. And then maybe we can go into kind of recession proof investing, if there is such a thing.
1: Yeah, once you've figured out the ISM and how it works, you can then find things that lead it. So that gives you an ability to forecast, okay, what it looks like. So currently I'm using a mix of the rise in interest rates, the rising commodities and the rise in the dollar and it's like financial conditions. And that's suggesting that the economic cycle goes almost immediately to recession and pretty sharp. And I think a lot of people are sensing that is happening. You're hearing it from companies, you're hearing it from a lot of people to say, yeah, it looks like we're going to recession. So the forward-looking stuff suggests we're about to go into a severe recession. So now you need to figure out, well, what are asset prices pricing in already? Because you can't trade on today's news you need to trade on tomorrow's news. And really speaking, you need to trade six months out news. And so where are we? So if I look at the year on year rate of change that I talked about, if I look at the S&P 500, it's already pricing in about 42 in the ISM. So a full recession below that 47 level. Could it go a bit further lower? Yes, because my forward-looking indicators suggest the ISM could get down to 40 or so, maybe a bit lower. But we're kind of in the right zone to say, actually, a lot's been priced in. Could there be one leg lower? Maybe. But that means that as an investor, your spidey sense should be up saying, hey, is the opportunity coming here to buy when everybody else is fearful? So again, my forward-looking indicators suggest that the economy picks up maybe in the first quarter of next year. So in which case the markets will start to forward look some of this. So it's it's actually a little bit of a tricky point in time today but we're getting very close to the time where the markets will start saying, okay, I can see what's gonna happen here. The economy is gonna go into recession. The Federal Reserve will stop raising interest rates as will the other central banks and chances are things start reversing again.
0: And I think retail investors consensus as well, one of the most searched terms on Google this month when it comes to macroeconomics was, will the markets crash in 2022? So I think people feel that something is potentially looming And if we look at potential survival kits for recessions, how my grandparents might treat this is very different to how I would treat this. They would stuff cash under the mattress, whereas the younger generations might try and be a little bit more agile. It is still quite difficult to work out how to navigate this perfect storm. If you play it well, it could be very profitable for you as an investor. But also, there's a lot of room for risk and error as well. So, how would you say to navigate if we do hit that 47, uh, as you mentioned on the ISM, if we do start to see indicators of a recession, how would you move from here?
1: So, generally, he who has cash in a recession is king. Because you want to be ready when nobody else is, when everybody's being forced to throw all their trades out and stop themselves out from losing money, you want to be able to buy. So you kind of want to have cash ready, and then you want to see what the economy does, and then start to see, hey, are bond yields coming down? Are the Federal Reserve going to stop raising rates? Those are kind of signals that the the future economy in a year's time is not likely to be as bad as what we're seeing coming in the next three to six months and it's that transition that becomes very interesting for investors so you know basically if you're young you should be risk seeking if you're old you should be risk avoiding it's as simple as that so if you are young you should be looking at okay how do i take an advantage of the sell off in crypto and the sell off in in stock markets and technology stocks because those are the things that will drive returns over the next 10 or 20 years but if you're older and you're retiring you want to stay in cash for longer, you don't want to take as much risk because you don't have an income. So your grandparents don't have an income anymore. So it's just their pension. So they need to be careful, very careful with their pension, their nest egg has to be protected at all costs.
0: Got it. And now when we look at uh, learnings along the way, things that you've picked up along the journey, is there any things that you've learned from say 2008 that you can put into practice here? Or is this a different ballpark?
1: Everything is always different, but it's always similar. So the question about 2008 was different. 2008, we had a financial crisis, so we had another thing. It wasn't just the economy slowing down, but we had something much worse. And 2001 was much worse. We had this, the biggest stock market bubble in history that unwound. This time around, I'm struggling to see what that big thing is. Yes, we've had inflation, which is different to the prior cycles, but inflation is also driven by the business cycle and it should come down over time. So I don't see the really terrifying outcome. Of course, some companies might go bust. People will lose their jobs. Um, You know, maybe some weaker economies will suffer badly. But generally speaking, I'm not picking up, oh my God, we've got a debt crisis coming or something really bad. So I think it is different. And so a lot of people are expecting the next leg down. You know, Is this going to cause the crash? I mean, the market's are already down. I mean, the NASDAQ's down 27%. It was down 35% or so. It's pretty much crashed once already. But people are like, can it go down 50%? Because they look back at 2008 and 2001 and said, see, it can do that. When you go back to other recessions like 1990, it was a 20% correction. In fact, even when the Volcker years, the famous time when Paul Volcker was raising interest rates and slaying inflation, the market fell 27%. So it wasn't the big one, but 1974, it fell 50%. So we don't know whether it's a 50% sell-off, which is usually driven by something much worse, or something around 30%, which is roughly what's priced in right now. I'm erring to the 30%, so I, the risk reward is looking more attractive um, than if we were in 2008, where we had something much worse going on.
0: Okay, got it.
1: Getting in and out of crypto, we have the newest solution. Stop paying fees on crypto exchanges and stop waiting long processing times. At Fluid, R1 Reef Structure allows you to get in and out of crypto in seconds. Direct from your bank account. Sign up and download the app today.
0: Uh, so now when we look ahead then, so you've mentioned you kind of accumulation, sit on cash, be risk averse if you are a fairly young investor and then look to navigate through when you feel the market is at that kind of perfect right point. What kind of sectors might you be looking for then when it comes to finally feeling like this is the time for a good entry point? Markets are starting to uh, remain consistent. I'm going to re-enter into the market. Is it crypto? Is it bonds? Is it tech stocks? Is it an accumulation of those and more?
1: Yeah. So it depends on how much risk you want to take and what time horizon you're investing in. If you're young, the single best risk reward is crypto because it's the only market that goes up 10, 20, 50x. While the stock market may double, may may go up 200% over the next five years. But crypto market does a lot more. So if your aim is to take risk to accumulate wealth, then crypto. I prefer crypto as a bet because I think it has a better risk reward than other markets. Um, but you have to suffer these drawdowns and you know a lot of crypto is down 60, 65%. Um, but if you're less risk seeking, you might just want to buy equities. If you're slightly more risk seeking in equities, you might want to buy technology stocks because technology is not going away. I mean, the rise of everything from AI to robotics to um, EV to space travel to everything is all happening at the same time. we have got this huge inflection point, so clearly that's going to be something that's probably going to generate a lot of profits over time. So I think it depends where you want to be on the risk curve. Some people like physical things, so they'd like to own stuff like oil companies because there's not enough oil being produced currently for world demand. So maybe over the next two or three years, that does well. But those stocks tend to be mean reverting, I they, they kind of just go in cycles. They're not the buy and hold that technology can be or crypto can be. So I prefer technology and crypto overall.
0: I'm sure the crypto crowd will love that answer as well. Uh, so when it comes to crypto exposure, because I was looking into when you first started investing in crypto and it was saying Bitcoin was 2012, if that was correct? 2013. So still very early on then. So still a very early adopter. What was some of the most exposure that you had to crypto at any one point?
1: Um, It's still today. I mean, 100% of my liquid net worth. So all of my savings that I don't need to cover my bills is in crypto. And I've been adding because we're at that point where the economic inflection point is going to change and that tends to be quite good for crypto. So I don't expect everybody to do that because liquid net worth is different to entire net worth. You know, I've got houses that I don't have mortgages on, I have an income. So the amount of risk I'm taking is actually not as big as it sounds. Um, and first time around 2013, it was significantly less because it was riskier. We didn't know, was this technology going to survive? Was it going to be banned? All of the questions that have now mainly been resolved, we didn't know that back then. It's like, here's a bet. I think it's, I, I wrote the first ever macro strategy piece on Bitcoin in 2013, and I said it was $200 at the time. I said, listen, if we value it like gold, it's it could be worth a million dollars. So let's assume I'm an idiot and discount myself by 90%, still worth a 100 grand, and therefore at $200 with the upside, you could lose all your money but the upside was 100,000. I'm like, this is the best risk reward I've ever seen in my entire life and the best one any of us will ever be given. And that actually proved out to be the case.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. How did that go down to 2013? And are you surprised in 2022 at the kind of response that you get from maybe more traditional investors when you talk about crypto?
1: In, in what respect?
0: So when you mentioned it in an article in 2013, what was the response from your typical Real Vision investor?
1: Back then, this was pre-Real Vision. So this was when I was writing, and I still write to this day, Global Macro Investor, my institutional research. I think people either ignored it or thought, this is interesting, and people got involved. Because you know our job is to look for really interesting opportunities that other people haven't seen. So a lot of people weren't so sceptical. The skepticism came later, in about 2017, when retail investors got involved. And then a lot of people didn't like it because the returns had been so big. They're like, at all times, it's a bubble, it's a bubble, because they didn't understand how this kind of very powerful technology worked. So those voices of dissent were much bigger in 2017 all the way through to today because it's questioning people's very system of understanding of financial markets and what is technology and how do they work, they kind of think it's crazy that a bunch of us are happy to see the market go down 70% and think that's normal, and then go up 20x. They, they don't see those kind of things. So they, they don't understand it. So they're kind of fearful of it. But in the early days, people were much more like, huh, this is interesting, much like we're observing the rise of AI, or what Elon Musk is doing in space. They're like, huh, it's interesting. But when it becomes a big thing, they all go, no, 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 this is crazy.
0: This is too much. I'm going to watch from the sidelines. I don't want to know. Or in my case, my mother will send me articles from mainstream media every time Bitcoin dips and say, Bitcoin's crashed, Bitcoin's dead, it's over. (laughs) So it's a little bit of the both, I think. Uh, So when it comes to different projects or different concepts in kind of, because crypto is so multifaceted, there's blockchain, there's also kind of AI, as you've mentioned, integrations of two or three of those as well. What kind of things within the crypto ecosystem are really interesting to you at the moment?
1: The hard thing about the crypto ecosystem is there is so much happening all at the same time. I mean, they've just raised $60 billion in venture capital, and everybody's building out projects. whether it's lending markets, financial markets on DeFi, whether it's putting traditional financial markets onto blockchain rails, whether it's putting real estate onto blockchain, whether it's building, um, doing really interesting things with NFTs such as ticketing. So we're seeing Ticketmaster has issued 10 million NFTs, the largest NFT issuer in the world. That's going on. We've seen Solana building a phone that which integrates all Web3 in your wallets. You've seen, I mean, there's literally almost too much to keep on top of. So, you know, how do you pass through all of that excessive information? You start looking, okay, what are the main chains that the activity takes place on? And the main place is Ethereum, and then places like Solana, Avalanche, Polkadot, and a few others. So that's how you, you kind of filter down. You see all of this stuff going on. You're like, oh, this is overwhelming. But then the great thing is, is what platforms they're being built on, and then we can invest in the underlying platforms and protocols.
0: And I was speaking to Damien, who's the co-founder of Real Vision as well. He was mentioning that you have a Real Vision office or media space in the Metaverse as well. So talk me through that—the kind of the idea behind being like, you know, what this is happening. We do have to be a part of this. We have to make our mark in this tech and digital revolution.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we've always been very Web3 forward. We've got an NFT community and we're building a whole bunch of Web3 things. Um, Stuff like crowdsourced, tokenized trading, where the crowd chooses the portfolio allocation. You can invest along with all the Real Vision members. But we also realized maybe two years ago that the metaverse was the future of all websites and experiences. So I kind of, went on the side with Damien and um, built out a Metaverse headquarters for Real Vision in crypto voxels, Um, And that was just the first test. We weren't really going to use it for a lot. We just wanted to see, get our feet under the table, establish what it could be for us. Uh, Now we're building some more experiences and we'll build out a full experience. Because, you know, if you think about people in the Real Vision community, they are like minded. They're investors, whether it's in crypto, traditional markets or both they like to talk to each other. So why would you not create a trading room where I could sit next to you and I can kind of look over your shoulder, what are you looking at today? That kind of experience because we're in this digital world now and physical proximity doesn't matter. Like I'm in the Cayman Islands today and you're in Dubai. Yet this technology allows us to chat as if we're in the same room together. So the metaverse is going to create these experiences that bring people together. And also I think will rechange entirely what we think of websites and platforms there's, I think Mark Zuckerberg understood this, that the Facebook feed is out a date for where the world is going, that the world will be because what are you doing on Facebook or Instagram or or um, any of these things? You are basically communicating with friends and others around you and kind of dropping into their lives and all of this stuff. So why should that be in a 2D feed of stuff? Why should it not be in something more immersive where we could hang out together and do this interview? in feeling like you're in a room together. And that's where we're going, it's 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 just a matter of time and everybody's building out for that vision.
0: It's really interesting you say that because the, the third most Googled question when it comes to macro investing was actually where to invest in the world. And when I saw the question, I thought, well, people don't really ask that anymore. That's not a question that when I go to conferences or when I listen to live streams or Twitter spaces, I hear people are more looking at where can they invest in which is frictionless, where you can easily move between countries, between borders, between digital, real world as well. And I think that absolutely seems to be the direction, specifically in crypto and Web3, that we seem to be heading.
1: Crypto is a true global asset. It's the same for the person in Dubai as it is for India, as it is for Kiribati, as it is for New York City. It's the same thing, right? We've never had that before. And the access to it, yes. You could trade foreign exchange, which is a globalized asset, but it's actually not that easy for people to do, but this is super easy. So we've never had this before. So I think you're right. I mean, it's really interesting.
0: And I have to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's video, Fluid Finance, because what we're working on is a bank alternative that links to your Web3 wallet available to anyone globally. And I think this is absolutely the direction that the industry needs to move in, especially for people that are in crypto that have been desperate for a bank account that works for them. So I would love to help set you up with an account after we finish the interview. Before we end off, though, I do want to jump more into just your journey as someone that is extremely experienced in the world of investing and also crypto and getting to meet a lot of interesting people along the way with your work with Real Vision. What have been some of your life lessons when it comes to your investing and your entrepreneurial journey? Maybe if you had a lesson or a word of advice for your younger self, what would
1: it be? I think the most powerful thing that I ever created was a network. And I didn't really realize that. And my network started at Goldman Sachs and maybe before that. And then the people that came into my network along the way, if you give them good karma, you're good to people, you help people, what happens is it builds like in crypto, this network that has value to you as a person and also to the other people. And so even in this digital world, having a network of people around you don't have to be physical, that you help out and they help out you, you don't realize the opportunities that's gonna bring. And you measure yourself by the quality of that network too. Sure, you've all we've all got a bunch of friends we grew up with that we're just kind of stuck with because we grew up together. That's okay, but you need to be actually careful about who you want in your network. And it it is immensely powerful. It doesn't mean it pays off today. It doesn't mean it pays off tomorrow but it pays off in the end, because you'll be smarter, you'll see more opportunities, and you'll have more opportunities. And that is a really powerful thing.
0: Fantastic, so invest in your network is number one. And I'm actually curious to round off as well, when it comes to your actual portfolio over the years, what have been maybe one of your fondest or your kind of most profitable or maybe most inspiring investments along the way that you look back and you kind of remember?
1: Okay, I'm going to give you the good and bad in this. Okay. Cuz it's pretty straightforward, it's the same trade. When I bought Bitcoin in 2013, I was super early. And I I had a long-term thesis and I knew it was going to be volatile and it could go to zero. So the idea was I bought it, it went up from 200 to 1000 in 6 weeks. I'm like, "Oh my god, I've never had something do this before." Then it fell 87%. And I kind of like, fine, you know, I knew it could go to zero, but I think it's got a much bigger upside. And my thesis was 100,000, up to a million. And then it kind of did nothing for a while and then took off. And there were the forking wars happened in Bitcoin back in 2017. And I got confused and worried that, okay, I don't know what this is gonna mean. Is this all gonna fall apart? And I was now up 10 times my money. So I took profits and I felt like a God. And then it went up another 10 times And I was like, that's okay. I've made 10 times my money. I can't argue. Then it crashed again. And I eventually knew that crypto and particularly Bitcoin at the time and macro would merge in the next recession. And that I really wanted to own it when it got sold off in a recession. 2020 comes along and I really piled in with as much money as I could possibly scrape together. And it turned out to be a phenomenal bet. Okay, so that sounds amazing. I went back and re-looked at that whole series of trades that I did, which look on paper genius. I went back and realized if I'd had just kept my initial investment and not done anything else, I'd have made five times as much as I did by trading it. And then wow. I worked out one more piece of magic, which was if I'd have actually bought crypto every time it did these big sell-offs and just added to my position in the same size I had originally put on, I'd have made 25 times as much money. So here I thought I'd done it really well, but what I screwed up was time horizon because I knew it was gonna be a long-term time horizon and I ended up trading shorter term. And on paper, it looked like I was a genius, but the reality was I was a fool. And so that was a huge lesson for me, both good and bad.
0: I think that's a fantastic life lesson for all of us as well, that actually in this industry, market cycles and patience is an absolute virtue. Thank you so much for your insights today. It's always a pleasure to catch up and I'm sure our listeners learn a lot along the way as well. Thank you.
1: Yeah, fabulous to see you. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much. Well, that's all from us here. We'd love to hear how you found this podcast episode. Make sure to leave a comment and like and see you all again very soon.